Hello, and uh, welcome back to another episode of uh, Ready and Run Your Podcast. I don't know. <laughs> um, I got some anonymous constructive feedback from a listener who uh, said that I should take my time and that I'm doing a good job and that that person is really enjoying this uh, podcast. So that was really encouraging to hear, and it was nice to get constructive feedback. Um, and I hear you. So. I'll take my time and make sure to put in comments here and there since it's not uh, annoying, but but yeah. So I love you. So just to recap, you finished chapter one titled The Secret of Marriage. And now we're going to move to chapter two, The Power for Marriage. Um, chapter two starts with a quote, or not a quote, a Bible verse. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Ephesians 5.21 Hmm, okay. The first section for chapter 2 is titled, Be Filled with the Spirit. Alright, now let's get, let's get into it. The introductory statement for Paul's famous paragraph on marriage in Ephesians is verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In English, this is usually rendered as a separate sentence. But that hides from readers an important point that Paul is making. In the Greek text, verse 21 is the last clause in the long previous sentence in which Paul describes several marks of a person who is filled with the Spirit. The last mark of Spirit, fullness, is in this last clause. It is a loss of pride and self-will that leads a person to humbly serve others. From this spirit-empowered submission of verse 21, Paul moves to the duties of wives and husbands. Modern readers, oh, modern Western readers immediately focus on and often bristle at the word submit because for us, it touches the controversial issue of gender roles. But to start arguing about that is a mistake that will be fatal to any true grasp of Paul's introductory point. He is declaring that everything he is about to say about marriage assumes that the parties are being filled with, the, with God's Spirit. Only if you have learned to serve others by the power of the Holy Spirit will you have the power to face the challenges of marriage. The first place in the New Testament that discusses the work of the Spirit at length is in the Gospel of John. Jesus considered the teaching so important that he devoted much of his time to it on the night before he died. Uh, just a little side note, remember, I don't know if you remember, but Pastor Paul had a sermon on this and he was talking about like this exact thing. Um, so like how like Jesus on like the last night spent a ton of time talking about the Holy Spirit. Um, but yeah, anyway. Thing. When we hear of spiritual fillet, okay, sorry, that is not like a word I usually use. Filledness. When we hear about spiritual filledness, we think of inner peace and power, and that may indeed be a result. Jesus, however, spoke of the Holy Spirit primarily as the Spirit of Truth, who will remind you of everything I have said to you. John fourteen seventeen. 26. The Holy Spirit will bring glory to me by taking 
from what is mine and making it known to you. John 16, 14. What does that mean? Make known translates a Greek word meaning a momentous announcement that rivets attention. The Holy Spirit's task, then, is to unfold the meaning of Jesus' person and work to believers in such a way that the glory of it, its infinite importance and beauty, is brought home to the mind and heart. This is why, earlier in the letter to Ephesians, Paul can pray that the eyes of your heart be enlightened, 118, that they might have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, 3.17-18. The Holy Spirit's ministry is to take truths about Jesus and make them clear to our minds and real to our hearts, so real that they console and empower us and change us at our very center. To be filled with the Spirit, then, is to live a life of joy, sometimes quiet, sometimes towering. Truths about God's glory and Jesus' saving work are not just believed with the mind, but create inner music, Ephesians 5.19, and an inner relish in the soul. Sing and make in... Sorry. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, verses 19 to 20. And because the object of this song is not favorable life circumstances, which can change, but rather the truth and grace of Jesus, which cannot change, this heart song does not weaken in times of difficulty. Immediately after discussing the spirit-filled life, Paul turns to the subject of marriage, showing the tight connection between marriage and life in the spirit. And this connection teaches us two things. First, the picture of marriage given here is not of two needy people unsure of their own value and purpose, finding their significance and meaning in one another's arms. If you add two vacuums to each other, you only get a bigger and stronger vacuum, a giant sucking sound. Rather, Paul assumes that each spouse already has settled the big questions of life, why they were made by God, and who they are in Christ. No one lives a life of continual joy in God, of course. It is not automatic and constant. If that were the case, Paul would not have had to start verse 18 with an imperative exhorting them literally to go on being filled with the Spirit. We are often running on fumes. Yeah, I can for sure. <laughs> Spiritually? What? Okay. We are often running on fumes spiritually, but we must know where the fuel station is, and even more important, that it exists. After trying all kinds of other things, Christians have learned that the worship of God with the whole heart and the assurance of His love through the work of Jesus Christ is the thing their souls were meant to run on. This is what gets all the heart's cylinders to fire. If this is not understood, then we will not have the resources to be good spouses. If we look to other spouses to fill up our tanks in a way that only God can do, we are demanding an impossibility. 
Okay, that's the end of that section. That section was titled, Be Filled with the Spirit. And um, if I was to summarize it quickly, in my own words, I would say, you know, at first he's saying, right? Because we're viewing, remember that, you know, we're focusing on a part of the Bible in Ephesians um, chapter 5, where Paul talks about marriage. And he's saying like, yes, so like this whole marriage thing starts, but actually, if you look right before, uh, like right above this marriage passage, it talks about the Holy Spirit. And so Tim Keller right now is saying like, hey, like, you know, like all this marriage stuff, it starts from the Holy Spirit. It starts from having an attitude of humbleness, of no pride. And like, that's tiring, right? It's really hard to, you know this, and I know this, like, it's really hard to forgive. It's really hard to be humble and not prideful. And like, oftentimes we're just so tired in life. Um, But the way that we can do this, the way that we can have the strength to do this is by relying on the Holy Spirit. So yeah. And yeah, he was also saying like, it's important not to put your spouse on the position of God and expect things from your spouse that only God can provide, you know? Like, yeah, I think that's true too. Like that's something I struggle with too, like not lifting you too high. Um, And I'm sure you too can relate to this, but like, you know, sometimes we lift each other so high and it's like really good because we love each other so much. But at the same time, it can get really bad really fast if we don't keep it in check and we know we place each other above God. This is not okay. And um, because, you know, we hurt each other, we disappoint each other. And if we put all our hopes onto the other person, they're going to fail at some point. Like, I will disappoint you at some point. You will disappoint me at some point. We're not perfect. And so... Yeah, we can't find our hope in each other. We have to find our hope in Jesus. Mm. Okay. The next section is titled, Submit to One Another. So only if you have the ministry of the Spirit in your life will you be fully furnished to face the challenges of marriage in general. And only if you are filled with the Spirit Will you have all you need to perform the duty of serving your spouse in particular? In verses 22 to 24, Paul says controversially that wives should submit to their husbands. Ah, <gasps> dun dun dun, you should submit to me. Ha ha ha. Immediately, however, he tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 25, which is if anything, a stronger appeal to abandon self-interest than was given to the woman. As we shall see, each of these exhortations has a distinct shape. They are not identical tasks, and yet each partner is called to sacrifice for the other in far-reaching ways. Whether we are husband or wife, we are not to live for ourselves, but for the other. And that is the hardest yet single most important function of being a husband or a wife in marriage. Paul is applying to marriage a general principle about Christian life, namely, 
that all Christians who really understand the gospel undergo a radical change in the way they relate to people. In Philippians 2, 2-3, Paul says bluntly that Christians should, in humility, consider others better than themselves. Notice that he doesn't say that we should be unrealistically... Sorry. Notice that he doesn't say that we should unrealistically try to believe that all others are better than us in every way. That would be nonsense. Rather, we should consider and count the interests of others as more important than our own. Elsewhere, he says that we should not please ourselves, but rather please our neighbor for his own good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. Romans 15:1-3. Paul goes so far as to tell Christians to be doloi of one another. Galatians 5:13. Literally bond servants. Because Christ humbled himself and became a servant and met our needs even at the cost of his own life, now we are like servants but to one another. This is a radical even distasteful image for modern people. Servant? When Paul uses this metaphor, he is not saying that we are to relate to one another in every way that is literal. Bond servants served their masters in ancient times. What he is saying is this. A servant puts someone else's needs ahead of his or her own. That is how all believers should live with each other. And if all believers are to serve each other in this way, how much more intentionally and intensely should husbands and wives have this attitude towards one another? This principle cannot be dismissed, however we, however, we define the husband's role. While Paul writes that the husband is head of his wife, whatever it means cannot negate the fact that he is also his wife's Christian brother and bondservant according to Galatians 5.13. Husbands and wives must serve each other, must give themselves up for one another. That does not destroy the exercise of authority within a human relationship, but it does radically transform it. It is hard enough in relationships with friends and associates to put their interests ahead of our own and live to please them rather than ourselves. But to practice these principles inside marriage is to practice them in the most intense way. If two spouses are spending a day together, the question of who gets each's pleasure and who gives in can present itself every few minutes. And when it does, there are three possibilities. You can offer to serve the other with joy. You can make the offer with coldness or resentment or you can selfishly insist on your own way. Only when both partners are regularly responding to one another in the first way can the marriage thrive. But how hard that is. Kathy and I remember a pivotal incident in our marriage that occurred during a visit to New England where we had attended seminary. The two of us, along with our three sons, were staying with friends, and I had hoped very much at some point to be able to get away to the nearby seminary bookstore just to see what was new, maybe pick up a few interesting books. But I knew that it would mean precious time taken out of other things we were doing together as a family. 
and it would leave Kathy with the full burden of caring for the kids. And so I was afraid to ask for it. Instead, I hoped Kathy would guess about my desire and simply offer the time for me. But she didn't do it. And soon, I found myself deeply resentful of her failure to read my mind. Surely, she should have known how much I love visiting that bookstore. I work very hard. Why doesn't she propose that I take the afternoon away simply because I deserve a break? I began to imagine that she knew I wanted to go to the bookstore, but was dead set against it. Wow, time out here. Like, I don't know if you've ever had this. You probably have, but me too. Like these kind of thoughts. And um, yeah, I feel kind of attacked right now. <laughs> anyway, I'll keep going. After a long, grumpy day helping Kathy with the kids and feeling sorry for myself, I finally told her how sorry I was that I had never made it to the bookstore. She was rightfully unhappy with me and said, Yes, that would have been inconvenient for me, but I would have loved to have given you that freedom. I never get a chance to give you gifts, and you're always helping me with something. You denied me a chance to serve you. I immediately realized, however, that I didn't want to be served. I didn't want to be in a position where I had to ask for something and receive it as a gift. Kathy was deeply disappointed and insulted that I had robbed her of the opportunity to do so. We drove home in angry silence as I tried to figure out what had happened. Finally, I began to see. I wanted to serve, yes because that made me feel in control, that I would always have the high moral ground. But that kind of service isn't service at all, only manipulation. But by not giving Kathy an opportunity to serve me, I had failed to serve her. And the reason underneath it all was my pride. Dang. This is pretty like, wow. Yeah, it's a good example. It's definitely something I need to work on too. Okay, I'll keep going. It is at this point, very point, that the Spirit of God helps us so much. In each text, Paul links a willing serving servant heart to the gospel itself. And what is that gospel? It is that you are so lost and flawed, so sinful, that Jesus had to die for you. But you are also so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for you. Now, you are fully accepted and delighted in by the Father, not because you deserve it, but only by free grace. My reluctance to let Kathy serve me was, in the end, a refusal to live my life on the basis of grace. I wanted to earn everything. I wanted no one to give me any favors. I wanted to give undeserved gifts to others, so I could have the satisfaction of thinking of myself as a magnanimous, means generous, person. But I did not want to receive someone else's service myself. My heart still operated like this, even though my head had accepted the basic gospel thesis that through faith in Christ, we live by God's grace alone. Dang, like this is something that... I struggle with too, um, like what he, I'm reading and what he's saying, like, 
like as I think about it, I'm definitely like that too. Like, I don't want to owe anyone. I don't want to get favors from other people, and you know what I mean. Um, so it's pretty similar, actually. Um, so I can totally understand what he's saying, and I can totally see why he's saying this is not a good way to have it. Like, it's good to be generous. It's good to be help for people, but it's also important to ask for help. Um, that's something I struggle with. And to receive help, but yeah. Okay, I'll keep going. That gospel message should both humble and lift the believer up at the same time. It teaches us that we are indeed self-centered sinners. It perforates our illusions about our goodness and superiority. But the gospel also fills us with more love and affirmation than we could ever imagine. It means we don't need to earn our self-worth through instant service and work. It means also that we don't mind so much when we are deprived of some comfort, compliment, or reward. We don't have to keep records and accounts anymore. We can freely give and freely receive. So why did I allow? So why did I fail to allow my relationship with Kathy to be shaped by this gospel? It was because I believed the gospel with my head, but it wasn't operational in my heart. The ability to serve another person requires the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, to drive this very gospel into our hearts until it changes us. Mm, so this recording has been going on for 21 minutes, and the max is 20. And this section is a little long. So I will pause here, put a little, uh, what's it called, thingy, a little sound thingy. Maybe I'll record more tomorrow. We'll see what happens. I love you. enjoyed your break um, again just to recap for myself because for you maybe you just paused but for me it's been a few days since I've uh, been reading this but we're on chapter two uh, the power for marriage not the power of marriage but the power for marriage hmm, interesting <coughs> and the next section we're on is called the problem of self-centeredness the main barrier to the development of a servant heart in marriage is what we touched on in the first chapter, the radical self-centeredness of the sin sinful human heart. Self-centeredness is a havoc-wreaking problem in many marriages, and it is ever-present and it is the ever-present enemy of every marriage. It is the cancer in the center of a marriage when it begins, and it has to be dealt with. In Paul's classic description of love in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, <coughs> Sorry, something got caught in my throat and it's like kind of itchy now. Okay, anyway, he's saying, what did Paul say? 
Love is patient and kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. Is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Verses four and five. Wow, I feel so called out.、Um, I've definitely done all of those things so many times, and I have the audacity to say I love you, or like have like. But yeah, definitely something very difficult to do. Okay, I'll keep reading now. Repeatedly, Paul shows that love is the very opposite of self-seeking. Which is literally pursuing one's own welfare before those of others. Self-centeredness is easily seen in the signs Paul lists: impatience, irrational, irritability, a lack of graciousness and kindness in speech, envious brooding on the better situations of others, and holding past injuries and hurts against others. In Dana Adam Shapiro's interviews of divorced couples, it is clear that this was the heart of what led to marital disintegration. Each spouse's self-centeredness asserted itself, as it always will. But in response, the other spouse got more impatient, resentful, harsh, and cold. In other words, they responded to self-centeredness of their partner with their own self-centeredness. Why? Self-centeredness, by its very character, makes you blind to your own, while being hypersensitive, offended, and angered by that of others. The result is always a downward spiral into self-pity, anger, and despair as the relationship gets eaten away to nothing. Dang! I just wanna wow. I wanna underline that, but self-centeredness, by its very character. Makes you blind to your own, while making you hypersensitive to other people's. It's like basically like being selfish and only thinking about yourself makes it so like the things you do wrong, you don't see how badly wrong they are, and the things other people do wrong, you make them even worse than what they really are.、Um, I can definitely confess that I've done that before. When we fight, or like when I fight with other people, even, but especially when we fight. <laughs> but yeah. But the gospel, brought home to your heart by the Spirit, can make you happy enough to be humble, giving you an internal fullness that frees you to be generous with others, even when you are not getting the satisfaction you want out of the relationship. Without the help of the Spirit, without a continual refilling of your soul's tank with the glory and love of the Lord, such submission to the interests of the other is virtually impossible to accomplish for any length of time without becoming resentful. <coughs> Sorry, I keep coughing. It's like really itchy. I call this love economics. You can only afford to be generous if you actually have some money in the bank to give. In the same way, if you only source of if if your only source of love and meaning is your spouse, then any time he or she fails you, it will not just cause grief but a psychological cataclysm. If, however, 
you know something of the work of the Spirit in your life, you have enough love in the bank to be generous to your spouse, even when you are not getting much affection or kindness at the moment. To have a marriage that sings requires a Spirit-created ability to serve, to take yourself out of the center, to put the needs of others ahead of your own. The Spirit's work of making the gospel real to the heart weakens the self-centeredness in the soul. It is impossible for us to make major headway against self-centeredness and move into a stance of service without some kind of supernatural help. The deep happiness that marriage can bring then lies on the far side of sacrificial service in the power of the Spirit. That is, you only discover your own happiness after each of you has put the happiness of your spouse ahead of your own in a sustained way. In response to what Jesus has done for you, some will ask, if I put the happiness of my spouse ahead of my own needs, then what do I get out of it? The answer is happiness. This is what you get, but a happiness through serving others instead of using them, a happiness that won't be bad for you. It is the joy that comes from giving joy, from loving another person in a costly way. Today's culture of the me marriage finds this very proposal of putting the interests of your spouse ahead of your own oppressive. But that is because it does not look deeply enough into this crucial part of Christian teaching about the nature of reality. What is that teaching? Christianity asserts to begin with that God is triune, that is three persons within one God. And from John 17 and other passages, we learn that from all eternity, each person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has glorified, honored, and loved the other two. So there is an other orientation within the very being of God. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, he was simply acting in character. As C.S. Lewis wrote, when Jesus sacrificed himself for us, he did in the wild weather of his outlying provinces, that which from all eternity he had done at home in glory and gladness. Then the Bible says that human beings were made in God's image. That means, among other things, that we were created to worship and live for God's glory, not our own. We were made to serve God and others. That means, paradoxically, that if we try to put our own happiness ahead of obedience to God, we violate our own nature and become ultimately miserable. Jesus restates the principle when he says, Whoever wants to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 16.25 <coughs> He is saying, If you seek happiness more than you seek me, you will have neither. If you seek to serve me more than you serve happiness, you will have both. Paul applies this principle to marriage. Seek to serve one another rather than to be happy, and you will find a new, deeper happiness. Many couples have discovered this wonderful, unlooked-for reality. Why would this be true? It is because marriage is instituted by God. It was established by the God 
for whom self-giving love is an essential attribute, and therefore it reflects his nature, particularly as it revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, when facing any problem in marriage, the first thing you look for at the base of it is, in some measure, self-centeredness and an unwillingness to serve or minister to the other. The word submit that Paul uses has its origin in the military, and in Greek it denoted a soldier submitting to an officer. Why? Because when you join the military, you lose control over your schedule, over when you can take a holiday, over when you're going to eat, and even over what you eat. To be a part of a whole, to become part of a greater unity, you have to surrender your independence. You must give up the right to make decisions unilaterally. Paul says that this ability to deny your own rights, to serve and put the good of the whole over the, your own, is not instinctive. Indeed, it is unnatural, but it's the very foundation of marriage. This sounds oppressive, but that's just the way relationships work. Indeed, it has been argued that this is how everything works. You must be willing to give something up before it can be truly yours. Fulfillment is on the far side of sustained unselfish service, not the near side. It is one of the universal principles of life. Here's a quote. Even in social life, you will never make a good impression of other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you are making. Even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without carrying two pence, how often has been told before, you will, nine times out of ten, become original without having noticed it. The principle runs through life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Nothing that you have not given away will really will be really yours. Sorry for that bad reading. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, my throat kind of hurts and I'm not reading well because of it. So I will stop here. I know it's a shorter episode, but yeah. Um, so let me summarize. the. This section is basically saying, right? The section title is problem of self-centeredness and what it's saying is like you know like a lot of the time when you're fighting it's because like we're too prideful and not just we're too prideful but we we're thinking about ourselves oh like how could they do this to me you know i think both you and i have said that a lot how could you do this to me or how could you say that to me and we think about like ourselves because you know that's just what we do we're very self-centered people we we're people who keep ourselves at the center of our universe but um you know he's saying in this section like to find true happiness to have a really good relationship you have to have the ability to give up that self-centeredness to find forgiveness but then he's also saying like you know to be able to find forgiveness out of nothing is like not nothing nothing like just out of like 
not anything. <laughs> I bet you laughed, but um, it's really difficult. Like, where do you get the strength to do that, right? Um, and where do we get the strength to do that? We get the strength from the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which reminds us about how much God and Jesus have sacrificed for us, and like what we have with God. Right, we have eternal life in heaven with Him, and like from that we get strength, and we find that strength to, you know, forgive our our husband or wife when they mess up, to like love on them even when they're not being very lovely. Um, so yeah, that is that. Uh, thank you for joining me today uh, in reading. And we'll continue more tomorrow or whenever, to be honest. <laughs> But yeah, I love you. Hopefully, you enjoyed. Mwah.